This episode contains descriptions of genocide, so please think about that before deciding whether to listen. In the spring of 1994, a tiny country in the middle of Africa, Rwanda, exploded in genocide. The nation ripped apart along communal lines, neighbor turned on neighbor, and as many as one million people were slaughtered. But the horror that unfolded before our eyes had been building for years. In the Rwanda crisis, journalist and Africa scholar Gerard Prunier offers a historical perspective on how the brutal massacre of 800,000 Rwandese came to pass. He probes how the genocidal events in Rwanda were part of a deadly logic, a plan that served central political and economic interests rather than a result of tribal hatreds, which is often how this bloodshed was portrayed. Welcome to Afterwards. This series focuses on six books that shaped Hearst over its 50 years as an independent nonfiction publisher. I'm author and New York Times journalist Jeffrey Gettleman, here today talking to Gerard Prunier, who is joining me from his home in France. Gerard interviewed both perpetrators and survivors for this book, which offers a heavily documented account of the horrors that unfolded in 1994. As a former consultant to the Mitterrand government, he revealed how France, among other Western colonists, helped to create the conditions for genocide. The Rwanda crisis is widely considered the definitive and most comprehensive account of the conditions leading up to the mass murder and the events that followed. It was published in 1998 by Hearst. This book, along with others by Girard, overwhelmed me. The research is exhaustive one fact stacked on top of another, and the writing is no nonsense and painfully clear. I was absorbed. I felt like a witness, like I was the one standing on a blood-soaked hillside, helplessly watching the events unfold in front of me. Even years later, certain passages keep floating back to me. Gerard, the book you wrote, The Rwanda Crisis, is considered one of the most definitive important books on the Rwandan genocide. I want to start by asking you a couple questions about it. Take us back to those early days when you showed up in Rwanda and began your research. How do you even start researching something as enormous and horrible as a genocide? I did not start to do any work right after the genocide. Because I knew Rwanda from before, the war. Because, you know, the genocide too often is taken as a kind of one-off kind of thing. It was not like that at all. I mean, the real things started with the invasion of Rwanda by the RPF uh, Tutsi coming from Uganda in October 1990. So the genocide happened four years later. The need to do any research at that time was not needed because I knew Rwanda from before the war, and I went there during the war several times on both sides of the combat. On the guerrilla side, walking in from Uganda and flying in into Kigali when the, the Hutu regime was still in power. You know, when the genocide happened, first of all, it was a shock because I'd become familiar with the war itself and the negotiations to some degree taking place in Arusha, Tanzania. You know, the genocide 
I knew it was a possibility. And I came back in February 1994, before Habyarimana's plane was shot down and the whole thing blew up. And I went to the Elysee, and I talked to uh, Bruno Delay, who was Mr. Africa for President Mitterrand. And I said, we're on the verge of something terrible. And I thought, I have to impress this man, so I have to exaggerate a little bit. And I told him, it is going to be so bad, we might end up with 100,000 casualties. When I think back, you know, it's incredible, 100,000. And Gerard, let me just stop you for a second. What was it in the air that was happening two months before this blew up? that led you to believe something really bad was about to go down? Uh, well, first of all, talking with people, then what happened to me? I was in a car with a man who was uh, Prime Minister Twagiramungu's secretary. These were Hutu who were against the regime. Because, you know, things have been very much simplified. All the Hutu killed all the Tutsi. No, it wasn't like that. Uh, some of the Hutu killed some of the Tutsi, and some of the Hutu got killed by other Hutu. We were there in his car. We got stopped at a roadblock. And, of course, he was well known. So they started punching him. And I started to try to object. They threw me on the ground and they stepped on me with their heavy military boots, saying, be happy, otherwise we put a bullet in your brain wow. if you don't like it. It's terrifying. So we shut up. We got, yeah, we got a little bit beaten up. And then we said we were close, actually, to a hotel which was owned by a man who was killed in a genocide, who was uh, Lando, uh, remember his nickname? Uh, he was uh, married to a white Canadian, and they were all killed, him, his wife, and their children. It was a kind of a roaming place and where all kinds of people met, and somehow the cops or the army didn't go in there. So my friend said, uh, let's go there and finish the night there. Otherwise, we might not get home. We might be dead trying to get home. You know, I said, okay, you know better than I. You know, so this is why, you know, everybody had been talking about an impending massacre. I didn't use the word genocide. I would have thought it exaggerated. Even when I got back to Paris and I tried to go to the office of the president. So how do you explain how this all happened in terms that a non-expert can absorb. What explains how that many people were killed in Rwanda in a very short period? Well, actually, it didn't start with the war in 1990. To understand it, you have to go back to traditional Rwandese society. The Tutsi have always been a kind of ruling aristocracy. Now, of course, if you look at the details, you have had a lot of poor Tutsi. That doesn't change anything. Before 1789 in France, you also had poor noble people. So you had poor Tutsi. But there was an institution called Ubuhake, which was a kind of serfdom for the Hutu. Basically, the Tutsi aristocracy ruled over the Hutu peasantry. And the Hutu peasantry, just uh, like the serfs in Russia, or, <laughs> were much more numerous uh, than the people who dominated them. And so it's a social structure, basically. By the way, these are not tribes. You talk about Africa, people say tribes, tribes, tribes. No. They spoke the same language, the religion was the same, and they both adhered to this feudal system 
which was accepted on both sides. I mean, uh, just like, uh, you know, in, in medieval France or in pre-19th century Russia. And, uh, you know, basically the Tutsi were the aristocracy and they were cattle herders. The Hutu were peasants and they were people who were working on the, on the land. But the armies, for example, were mixed. The officers were usually Tutsi, not always. At some times, it was the Hutu. Now, let's flash forward. Whites come. Germans first, they get wiped out uh, after the First World War. Then the Belgians replace them in 1919. Now, immediately the question was, what do we do? By the way, the Germans were better than the Belgians in terms of how they handled this divide of society. Yeah? The, just a little footnote. The Belgians say, what should we do? Work with the majority or with the aristocracy? And the church, which was very influent, managed to convert or <laughs> convince the colonial authorities to respect the basic distinction. We work with the top guys. And they did. But come the 1950s, you know, the first pre-rumbles of coming decolonization, The Hutu form their political party, Prosoma. The Tutsi form their party, Unar. And suddenly, the church has a shiver. And the colonial authorities, too. Because the Tutsi aristocracy becomes communist. Immediately, you have, in, if you put yourself in the mind of the Cold War years, these aristocrats are a bunch of reds. And the Hutu... In fact, the good guys. And since during the colonial years there had been a slight promotion of some elites among the Hutu saying, oh, we, you know, we have to take a few guys from the other side. So the Belgians suddenly start to panic and switch over their alliance from being allied with the Tutsi to being allied with the Hutu. Because at least the Hutu, we can trust them. They were all, you know, their party, Prosoma, was linked with the Belgian uh, Christian democracy. Good guys in the Cold War terms. And that is the whole background of what happened. I mean, the tensions of perhaps two or three centuries were mishmashed by the whites who started supporting the traditional aristocracy, and then suddenly turned against them. Because the Belgians sided with the Hutu. And so immediately they started, they used the decolonization to start killing Tutsi. This was a mini-genocide a long time before 1994. That was 59. At the time, how much of this was publicized or known outside of Central Africa? A little bit. But uh, when I went to Sciences Po, you know, the French School for Political Science, I had a, he's now dead, unfortunately, but a, a wonderful friend who was a really a, a geopolitical mind. You know, when I started talking to him about Rwanda and Burundi, you know, before the genocide, he said, ah, oh, this is the fight between the Tutsi and the Hutu. And I said, how did you know that? And he said, because I read it in a newspaper when I was 19 years old. So there was some newspaper coverage. But you know, Africa is black. Basically, the whites are racists. I'm sorry, but uh, I have lots of friends who are not. I'm not personally, but the whites consider, you know, all these black people are inferior. So you have something about the massacres between 59 and 63 
in decreasing quantity in the wider media. By 63, everybody has forgotten about it. All the Tutsi either submitted to the new Hutu government or went into exile. And let me just add for the listeners, so a large population or a large group of the Tutsis left Rwanda. They were being discriminated against and had lost a lot of their power, and they went to Uganda. They lived in these big refugee camps, and they used Uganda as a base to go back into Rwanda, and they were nurturing these dreams of taking over Rwanda again. And in the 1990s, they began to make inroads into Rwanda. And then why don't you bring us to the assassination and how that unleashed this spasm of bloodshed? Oh, we were in a kind of suspended animation. You know, I was just telling you a few minutes ago how I got stepped on. Usually when you're white in Africa, either you're killed because you're in really a lot of trouble. That is 1% of the cases. 99% of the time you're treated more nicely than you deserve. Okay. There, I was being stepped upon by guys with guns who said, if you even make a peep or a squeak, we shoot you. And they were not joking. Okay, so in the midst of all that, you shoot down a plane where the president dies. And immediately, since the genocide had been prepared before, the militias are in the street and start killing Tutsi. This was the uh, spark that set the grass on fire, and it was prepared. That, there is no doubt about it. I will not go into the details of what actually happened in the downing of the plane, but once the plane was down, it took about two hours for the killing to start. You cannot organize the killing of tens of thousands of people because it started with tens of thousands in two hours. It's not possible. And no, and speaking of that, some research I did, more people were killed in Rwanda per day than at the height of the Holocaust. Absolutely. And a huge difference is during the Holocaust, you had this advanced industrial operation with trains and concentration camps and gas chambers. And in Rwanda, this was being done very intimately, personally, with clubs and knives and crude weapons, some guns, but a lot of it wasn't. I mean, without getting too graphic, but just paint us a picture of those early days of killing. What did it look like in Kigali from everything that you've been able to reconstruct from both sides? But it's not Kigali. It was all over the country. Basically, it's all for geographical reasons. I mean, the Germans were killing Jews. They were dragging from uh, Western France all the way to Romania even up to Holland and whatnot. I mean, from all of Europe, Rwanda would not even one-fiftieth of the size of France. So, of course, killing people, you can do it on foot with clubs. Uh, you know, the question there is the social relationship that makes the militias capable of mobilizing people. Otherwise, the physical uh, doing it is very easy. You don't need vehicles, you don't need uh, weapons. You know, you take a big stick, the word used was massue, which is an old word for a club in French. You take four nails and you drive them through the club so that the, the sharp point sticks out. Then you break skulls. And the militias were the militia of the party of the single party uh, that was the party of government 
in the Hutu regime. They had mobilized their militias. They had perhaps 200,000 men at their disposal, which is slightly bigger than what the army was at the time. The army took part in some places, but some of the military had second thoughts about it. They didn't think it was a good idea at all because they know there is always a tomorrow. Some military units were uh, led by ideologues, uh, you know, of Hutu power, did it. But this was not the majority. Or there would not have been so many victims. Because the reason why there were so many victims is that the neighbor would kill the neighbor. You don't have to look. You know where he's hiding his chickens, where his uh, tool shed is. You can chase him because he's your neighbor. You know what he's doing in everyday life. And since the Tutsi did not live in special parts, they were spread out over the whole territory, of course they were more in the towns because they were better educated given the fact that the Belgians had given them a, a better share of education during the colonial days. So actually a lot of Tutsi survived quite well under the Hutu regime because they were educated, they spoke fluent French, some of them were the first ones to speak English, they worked for NGOs, they worked never for the government and the army. That was forbidden. Let me ask you about the role of France. France has been criticized heavily for what it did and didn't do during these days of intense bloodshed. What's your position on what they could have done? And has France really accepted the responsibility it should accept for what happened? Well, I mean, it all depends whether stupidity makes you responsible. I tend to think yes, but basically the French were idiots. They did not know what was going on. And when some of their own troops that were present in Rwanda before the genocide had evacuated by the time of the genocide, since the agreement uh, taken in 1993... But when some members of the French military forces tried to talk in Paris about the impending catastrophe, because, of course, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, somebody who can uh, gaze through a crystal ball. I was not the only one to know the catastrophe was coming. They could never be heard by their own hierarchy. And I know precise cases at their own cost, going to see their own military superiors, and they were told to just keep quiet, and usually they were forcibly retired, especially because these were superior officers. They had a bit of money and a bit of wisdom, and, and they would try to say, look, this is going to be a catastrophe. They were not listened to. And Gerard, once the bloodshed started... France was criticized for protecting some of the killers. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, they didn't protect any killers on the spot, simply because they were not there. But what they did was to facilitate the transfer of some of the leaders to the Congo. And when these uh, former militias, uh, part of the army, and so walked to the Congo, to keep delivering weapons to them. And some of the people who, you know, are now uh, recently retired or uh, among the youngest, some are still in service. And they were delivering weapons to the people who had carried out the genocide. Of course, you'll tell me it's a different situation. You know, I asked them, because I knew at the time when it was happening, I said, why are you this idiotic thing? Why are you doing that? And they said, uh, well, it's because this is the legitimate government of the country. Mr. Kagame and his bunch of ruffians uh, just took power by force. 
We'll see how it turns out, but for the time being, for us, the legitimate government is the one in the Congo, which meant the government which had uh, carried out the genocide. Let me ask you now a couple questions before we finish about your book, because you're an incredible narrator of the events and the forces that drove these events. But let's talk a little bit about your book. When your book came out, it had some real shocking information that you had researched that people couldn't argue with. When it came out, what was the reaction to it? Oh, it is very funny that the reaction was much stronger as time went on. And I suppose it's like the information about this reality seeped in. And then a number of people said, hey, but by the way, Prunier already said so two, three years ago. That's uh, the same for a lot of uh, shocking information. A member of my family was detained in a POW camp in Germany. Since he was an officer, he was freed in 1942, right in the middle of the war. During the time he was in the POW camp, he was next door to a camp where Jews were being massacred. He could see the smokestacks with the Jews going up in smoke, okay? He came back to France, he tried to talk about it, he was immediately arrested, and he had a lot of problems. He was a conservative, pro-Pétain man. It didn't change anything. But, you know, I was a young boy after World War II. Nobody actually could really begin to believe what had happened in Central Europe between 1941 and 1945. Absolute horror is not very easy to integrate and digest. This was absolute horror. I've seen a lot of war. I've seen a lot of fighting, a lot of massacres in my years in Africa. I've never seen anything like that. So it took some time. When the book came out and the years afterward, what was the discussion around the book? Did some people accuse you of making things up? Did some people really rally behind you and thank you for bringing this to light? What was the impact? Actually, there was very little impact. And when there was an impact, it was just before everybody had realized everything and the French were still in it up to their neck. A French officer inside the Ministry of Defense said, people like you deserve 12 bullets. Okay, so the French officers, of course, would reject your findings because it implicated them. But what about among scholars, journalists, people that care about Africa? What role did your book play in those discussions? Actually, a very weird and ambiguous one, because I was seen as pro-Tutsi. You know, I mean, it was really like uh, the uh, Israeli and the Arabs, uh, you know. So since I was an associate of the RPF, I visited the RPF lines during the war, and I was even shelled. I was caught in a shelling by the French army. I was nearly killed. You know, when I went back to France and I said, you guys almost killed me, you know what the answer was? Pity we missed you. So I was pro-Tutsi. And then soon I began to realize what was happening in the RPF government. The massacres that took out towards the end of the genocide as the RPF was walking in. And then after 96, the massive massacres of refugees, of Congolese, when the Rwandese uh, new power invaded the Congo. And of course, I wrote about that too. Yeah, and let me just add, I, I did a book review for the New York Times book review about your Congo book, which was a really gripping read. And that story, in its simplest terms, was about how Rwanda pushed in 
to uh, Congo with the excuse of chasing down the perpetrators of the genocide who had been seeking refuge in Congo, and they massacred tens of thousands of people, and they kept going all across Congo, and they eventually overthrew Mobutu Sese Seiko, who had been one of the most powerful dictators in Africa throughout the 70s and 80s during the Cold War. And then Rwanda continued to play this role behind the scenes, which many people say was meddling and resulting in more bloodshed and dysfunction across Congo. And that was what your second book was about, or your further book was about. And that book definitely didn't have a pro-Tutsi bias. It pointed a very sharp finger toward the uh, Tutsi leadership. So I think it would be hard for anybody to just sum up your work and say, oh, this guy's a pro-Tutsi, pro-Kagame researcher, because that book was very damning. So as a result of what you're saying, I was accused of being pro-Hutu. I think I can pride myself a little bit in being objective. You're supposed to be pro-something, and if you're ambiguous or you try to tell the truth as you think it is, then both sides think you're a traitor. And this is how it ended. So now, 25 years later, when there are mentions of my book, said, oh, by the way, yes, pretty idiot, you know, 25 years ago. It was not a very comfortable seat to be sitting on. Because first I was seen as pro-Tutsi, then I ended up being seen as pro-Hutu. But that just shows your independence. I mean, when everybody doesn't like what you're writing, that's probably a good sign. <laughs> um, Thank you. Let me just finish with a, a slightly different question. To end every episode of the series, we ask our guests about the one book that shaped them. What is the one piece of scholarship or literature that you've read in your life that had the most influence on you? Oh, the work of Max Weber. He's a little god to me. Max Weber is the ultimate historian, sociologist, uh, whatever. Uh, I don't even come to, uh, as we say in French, to his ankle, but this is my ideal. Well, listen, this has been fascinating. I could talk to you for another hour. I am in, in great admiration of the work you've done. It's a part of the world that people quickly kind of turn their back to and don't try to understand. And it's fascinating. You make it fascinating, talking about the, the social structure and all the political forces and how this happened and how it continued to shape events in this part of Africa. Still today. Yeah. I mean, it's like the reverberations, the aftershocks, they're still happening. So let me just thank you on behalf of everybody who's listening for your work and for speaking to me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough for Hearst Publishers. Thank you to Gerard Prunier for taking part in this episode. I'm Jeffrey Gettleman, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. If you like what you heard, we have a special discount code for any listeners wanting to order a Hearst book. Just visit hearstpublishers.com and use the code AFTERWARDS25. That's AFTERWARDS25 and you can get a discount code on any book Hearst publishes.